I am uh, here today because our senior pastor is on the youth ski trip. How about that? Um, he's on the youth ski trip because as Jennifer and I um, looked at our due date, which is pretty close to now, uh, we kind of decided it would be good for me to be here just in case our baby came early. So, But uh, it is good that Robert is in the mountains with our youth. I think it's wonderful that they get to spend time with him. He's our speaker this weekend up there. So... Uh, I'm thrilled that he got to go up to the mountains of West Virginia with them. Um, speaking of mountains, my boys have um, had some kind of weird mountain fetish lately. Um, Elijah one day came home and just started talking about Mount Everest. I don't know why. He just, all of a sudden, he, he was like, Mount Everest, and Mount Everest this, and, and K2, and Kilimanjaro, and he wanted to know all about the, the really tall mountains in the world, and so we've been looking at pictures, and and talking about how tall they are and, um, and, and what it would take to, to climb one of them. And uh, Elijah and Nathaniel and I have decided we will not climb Everest. Um, <laughs> we think Big Ridge is probably good enough. Um, but, you know, as we talk, you know, as I understand it, what you need to climb Everest, we need a lot of things. You need, uh, first of all, probably, you just probably need to be insane, um, but a lot of determination. Uh, really good cold weather gear, you need the right tools, the right climbing tools, you need, uh, you need to be in, in, in really freakish physical shape, uh, you need oxygen, as you get up that high you can't breathe, uh, you need nutritious food and water, you need a, a Sherpa to guide you up the mountain, uh, but those things are not actually what you need the most. What you need the most is base camp. If you don't have base camp, you don't get any of those other things. Base camp at Mount Everest is the thing that prepares you to go to the top. It's the thing that prepares you for a journey that could easily kill you. Without base camp, you are aimless and lost. The mountain will defeat you quickly. And that is a good illustration as we approach Proverbs chapter 9 this morning. That's a I think a good illustration for what this chapter is teaching us about godly wisdom. That godly wisdom is, is similar to Mount Everest base camp. So let us uh, read our text. We're going to read all of chapter 9. And then we'll get into what this is saying to us. Proverbs 9, starting in verse 1. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. 
For by me your, your days will be multiplied, and your years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn and hear. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Pray with me. Father, as we come to, to this text this morning, to this part of your word, um, we, we come humbly, we come looking to know you better, we come for wisdom, and I pray, Father, that you would move amongst us, open our ears and our eyes and our hearts so that we might um, gain a better understanding of who you are, so that we might live life in the house of wisdom. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, Proverbs, if, if you know anything about it, you know Proverbs is a book of wisdom. It's, it's Solomon uh, writing to a young man who, who may be one of his sons or possibly to all of his sons. Um, and there are two main sections of the book. The first section is, is a, uh, a, a, a chunk of, of chapters on the character of wisdom. What, what is wisdom like? Where does it come from? And then, in contrast, what is, what is folly? And where does that come from? Um, and then the, the last, bigger section is what you would traditionally call the Proverbs, the, the sayings, the, the specific things about um, how, how to live life, stuff like, uh, you know, a, a soft answer turns away wrath, things like that. Um, and so, as we look at, at this chapter, chapter 9, it's in the first section. It's in the, the section on what wisdom is like, the character of wisdom. And, and to really understand uh, what wisdom is like, we always have to go back in Proverbs to, to the theme verse of Proverbs, which is found in multiple places, but found for the first time in Proverbs 1.7, which is, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So Proverbs is telling us that the wisdom, godly wisdom, begins with a heart that belongs to God. It begins when we recognize that God is Lord and that it is up to us to live life according to His design. In other words, it is a, a worshipful life. It is a lifestyle of worship. But not all call God Lord. Some choose an opposite way. Some choose the way, as Proverbs describes it, the way of folly. And so as, as we look at Proverbs 9, once again, what we're concerned about, what this chapter is trying to get at the heart at, is, is the choice between a life of wisdom and a life of folly. Why do people choose one or the other? What is going on inside a heart that chooses wisdom or a heart that chooses folly? To go back to our illustration of, of Everest, Chapter 9 is, is saying that everyone operates out of a base camp. Everyone has a, a, an underlying foundation, a base camp, 
that, that fuels us, that provides us with the necessary tools that, that we need to live according to whatever type of wisdom we feel is best. This is what it's saying. But the question is, is how and then why does each person decide which base camp to call home? And so, for answers, we look first at the house of wisdom. This is where the chapter starts. And specifically, this is, is not just any wisdom. It's not, it's not just like Benjamin Franklin, um, ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, stuff like that. This is godly wisdom. This is ultimate wisdom. Um, there's a couple reasons why we know that. One, in the Hebrew, this word for wisdom is actually a, a plural word, but it's not a plural of, of number. It's a plural of fullness. It's indicating that it is the fullness of wisdom. It's the ultimate wisdom. It is the wisdom that all other wisdoms are patterned after. The other reason we know this is godly wisdom is because verse 10. Verse 10 is a variation of what we've already read, the Proverbs theme verse. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is insight. This is kind of the hinge of this chapter. It's, it's the, again, going back to the heart of wisdom. And what's in view with this theme verse that we find all over Proverbs is the creator-creature distinction. Uh, in other words, it's this foundational idea that in its simplest form says, God is creator and we are not. We're his creatures. Um, God is creator and not only is he creator, but he is He's the one who upholds the universe, as we already read in Hebrews 1 in our call to worship today. Uh, it is his world. It is the way he designed it is the way it functions. Um, and how we live in this world is determined by God alone. Uh, li- illustrations for that. Gravity. Okay? We, we can invent all kinds of things, right? But, but ultimately, we can't change gravity. We can, we can invent an airplane or a rocket ship or whatever, and we can, we can go up into the sky, but it's coming down sooner or later. We cannot change the rules and laws of gravity because we are not the creator. Another example would be childbirth. Um, God has designed it so that women are to carry and bear children, not men. And I don't know that there's a man that would want to change that. But if there is, there is no surgery, there is no medical procedure that can change that. We are not creator. We are creatures living in God's world. We cannot have creative authority the way God has it. Now, we are, we're given some authority. We're told in Genesis that we are God's image bearers and that we are we're given stewardship over the creation, so that's some authority, uh, caring for God's creation. Um, but ultimately, we live in God's world. It is a world of God's design. He has made it work the way it works because that's what he designed. And so the creator-creature distinction um, is, is to say that we recognize and that we delight in God's status as sole creator, and our status as his servants. And that's the fear of the Lord. That is the core of wisdom. And there's really only two responses to this 
creator-creature distinction. There's a, a great quote from John Piper who says, either we trust God by affirming all his revealed wisdom, or we play God by deciding what he got wrong. Living in the house of wisdom, as we're about to discuss, is to trust God by affirming all his revealed wisdom. Not, not just some of it, not just what we like, all of his revealed wisdom. And in chapter 9, we see many great benefits of this. First and foremost, we see that wisdom is beautiful. It appeals not just to the mind. It's not just knowledge. It's not just something that makes you smart. It is beautiful. It appeals to our affections. It appeals to our heart. Um, Proverbs is, as already said, written to a young man. That doesn't mean that it doesn't have application for young women. It does. It's just written to, specifically, a young man. And so the author personifies wisdom as a woman, as someone who would be attractive to a young man. And so wisdom is attractive. Wisdom is graceful. Wisdom is beautiful. Wisdom is something to be desired. It is not just practical. It's not just useful. It is beautiful for what it is. But it's not dainty. It's not fragile. See, wisdom, we we read here, has a house that she has built that has seven strong pillars. Now, I don't know about you, but my house doesn't have pillars. I mean, the houses, you, you drive around, you look for the houses with pillars, those are big houses. Those are where the, you know, all the wealthy people live. And, and, and so wisdom not only has pillars, it has seven pillars. It has a lot of pillars. It has the right number of pillars. And so wisdom has great wealth and power. Wisdom has also made preparations for her guests. She's laid out an amazing feast. If there's one thing that appeals to the affections of a young man as much as a, a beautiful woman, it's a feast. Men, we, we love feasts, and, we, and, and wisdom has got the best feast prepared for us, right? She's got filet, freshly baked bread. She's got the finest wines. You probably would even love her vegetables. Um, and there's no junk food. You don't see any junk food here. There's, there's no Twinkies. All right, everything that's good for you, nothing that is bad for you. Wisdom is a place where we get proper nutrition to live well. And it's all out in the open. It's a place of truth. It's a place of honesty. There's nothing to hide. There's no fine print. There's no hidden agendas. When wisdom's house is open for all to see, she wants you to see what's going on in there. She wants you to come and dwell there and delight in dwelling there. Now, who is this for? For whom does wisdom prepare all of this, this feast, this home? The text says it's, the, it's for those who are simple and those who lack sense. You notice that, that wisdom sends out her young women and they have a job. And their job is to recruit. They go out and they recruit people who lack sense. In other words, those who do not fear the Lord. Now this is an important point to make that in the book of Proverbs, lacking sense or being simple is not usually associated with a low intellect. That's not what's in view here. Lacking sense, being simple in Proverbs, is, is more associated with wickedness, with waywardness, with sin and rebellion. And so what we need to see is that those who lack sense, the simple, that's all of us. All of us. 
Wisdom doesn't call to anyone who's already wise because those people don't exist. We all begin our lives in rebellion against God. And so wisdom calls to those who lack sense, calls to all of us. And wisdom calls to us, and the only way we respond to that call is if our hearts are changed so that we will desire wisdom. So if we see this chapter, chapter 9, through our New Testament eyes, if we see it uh, through the knowledge of the fact that Christ has come as Savior, we see that this describes how the Holy Spirit effectually calls us to Christ. It is only through the Holy Spirit that we will see who Christ is, and we will see what He offers, and we will see that He is beautiful. So what does Christ offer? Well, that's probably a whole 10 years worth of sermon series right there, but I'll give you a little smidgen. 1 Corinthians one twenty four says that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. We read elsewhere that He possesses all treasures of wisdom and the knowledge of God. And in fact, that He is God. That He upholds the universe by the word of His power. That all things were created by Him and for Him and through Him, including wisdom itself. So just as Lady Wisdom offers us nutrition, health, life, and joy, so do we find health and life and joy in Christ. Jesus says in John 10.10 that He came so that we may have abundant life. Also in John 4.14, He says that whoever drinks of the water He provides will never be thirsty, and that this water will become in us a spring of water welling up to eternal life. When we are called and changed by the Holy Spirit, wisdom, godly wisdom, becomes our base camp so that we live out of an abundant relationship with Jesus Christ. And this is the only way we can live the Christian life, which we've, we've got to come to understand the Christian life is real life. is how God designed everyone to live. And anything else is, is a fake. So the only way to live real life, to live the way God designed us to live, is out of base camp wisdom. Out of the base camp of godly wisdom. There, there are a ton of examples we can look at to illustrate that. One you might consider is, is the Sabbath. Um, for, for many, the idea of, of taking one day out of seven and devoting the whole day to God um, is, is foolish. I mean, we're so busy. We have so much to do, so little time. Why in the world would we cut out a whole day and, and just devote that to God and, and lay aside our worldly cares and our worldly work? Why? It doesn't make any sense. Unless you understand the wisdom offered in the Scriptures, unless you have a relationship with Christ, it won't make sense. But when you have a relationship with Christ, we, sit, we start to see Sabbath as time to worship God, time to be with God, time designed from the creation of the world for us to refocus our whole lives on God. 
Sabbath is the way God designed things to live, to have a, a weekly pattern of rest. And not just physical rest, but spiritual rest, reminding ourselves who is God, who is Creator, that we are not. We desperately need that. But unless we dwell in base camp wisdom, unless we have, been, have hearts that have been changed by the Holy Spirit, we'll never see that at all. Sabbath will, will just seem foolish, but that's because it is an invention of human wisdom. It is folly to think that way, to think the Sabbath is foolish. So speaking of folly, I want to skip the middle section of this chapter and, and cut down to uh, Lady Folly's house real quick. We'll, we'll come back to the middle in a little bit. Um, Lady Folly's house is not the place you want to go. It is, it is way across the wrong side of the tracks. It is windowless. Uh, the doors are boarded up. Looks like something out of The Walking Dead or something like that. It is, you can't see what's going on in there. It's sketchy. Um, she's sitting out there calling to you saying, come on in. You know, Lady Wisdom made all these careful preparations for her guests, but Lady Folly hasn't prepared anything. She's got nothing for you. She's just saying, come on in. Text says she doesn't know anything, but she's still inviting you in. Um, there, there's no feast in there. there. There's no goodness in there. All she says that's in there is stolen water and bread eaten in secret. Lady Folly, uh, she offers us jail food, but your sin nature makes you think that you want it. Your sin nature makes you think it's a feast. Your sin nature makes you think that this kind of slavery, being in jail, is freedom. That slavery is what you desire. That's what your sin, that's what my sin nature makes me think. And notice also that Lady Folly appeals to those who lack sense as well. She's appealing to the same people, which is again, all of us. But where Lady Wisdom calls sinners to a changed heart and to a changed life in a relationship with Jesus, look at what Lady Folly does. She, she invites sinners to continue to be who they are, to not change. She says, come on in, my way is easy. My way is comfortable. My way, you won't need to change a thing with my way. Just be who you are, be more of who you are. Let your desires and your affections guide you into my house. Sounds so easy. But notice that no one comes out of Folly's house. She doesn't send out any disciples. Why? Because all who enter go down to Sheol. Sheol is the Hebrew underworld. It's the place where the dead are. And we are drawn to death by our sin nature. No one needs to entice us to this. We are drawn to folly like bugs to a bug zapper. It is the base camp that enables us to do one thing and one thing alone. To die. So how does this play out in a person's life? Who, who goes to folly's house? Well, in the middle verses of this chapter, we see that it's the scoffer. Now, I know that that's probably not a common word that we use today. Um, I don't hear many of the teenagers going around calling each other, hey, you're a scoffer. Doesn't happen much. But um, 
A scoffer is a, a cynical, prideful person. It's a person who knows everything. A person who knows better than you, always. Um, a scoffer says, I have my own right answers. I follow my own wisdom. I don't need you to tell me anything. This was the plague of Israel. If you go back to the book of Judges, one of the common refrains there is, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's a scoffer. I always do what's right in my own eyes. Uh, today, we see that repackaged in relativism, this idea that, that truth is subjective, that um, you can determine for yourself what's right and wrong. I'm my own standard. So because I'm my own standard, because I'm my own base camp, all of my emotions and, and all of my desires are right and good. And therefore, where all of my emotions and desires lead me, the choices they lead me to, those are all right and good too, and you can't tell me any different. Not all scoffers are relativists, though. This is where we need to be careful. Not all scoffers are, are atheists. Not all scoffers are just practitioners of other faiths. There are some scoffers in the church. There are good Christian men and women who are scoffers. Sometimes this is very subtle. Sometimes we'll follow Jesus up to a point, but then a really hard decision comes down, and we decide, no, I'm not following Jesus there. Um, I know that God wants me to be happy, and it makes me happy to sin. To that I would say, yes, God wants you to be happy, but never outside of his obedience. Never outside of obedience to him. No exceptions. There are other times, though, when scoffitude is a little bit more prominent. Um, the self-righteous, who, when, when you tell them that they are sinners in need of a Savior, that is an offense. That is an, ins an insult. They would say, I'm not like those people over there who need help. I've got my life together. And it sounds a lot like the Pharisee who contrasts himself with the tax collector, who says, I'm above him, I'm... I'm better than him. I'm, I'm right up there with God. This is blindness. See, the scoffer, the true scoffer, the scoffer at its core is the one who does not know that he's a scoffer or, or won't admit that he's a scoffer or just can't see it. This is why when you try to, to correct a scoffer, you get abuse. Uh, any correction, any help that you try to give to a scoffer is an attack on his base camp. It is an all-out assault on his foundation. His foundation is his own wisdom, and if you try to correct any of it, you're saying that, that, that he, his own wisdom is, is full of holes, and a scoffer can't take that. On the other hand, correction to a believer is a wonderful thing, or it's supposed to be anyway. I don't, I don't know that we always take it well, uh, when someone corrects us with a good spirit, but uh, hopefully we do. Uh, hopefully we see that wise counsel, that, that constructive criticism, or, or when a brother or sister comes to you and, and gently points out uh, a pattern of sin in your life, hopefully we see that not as a, an attack, but as something that, that actually helps us pursue Jesus. So hopefully we welcome it. Hopefully we say thank you for, for being brave enough and kind enough to come to me with correction. 
Remember, a, a believer knows that, that they're not creator. So they can't know everything. We, we always need to grow. And so we always should welcome help. But a scoffer can't see this. Instead, a scoffer mocks everything unless it's his own idea. Uh, C.S. Lewis has this great quote about a proud person. He says that a proud person is always looking down on things and people. And as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. So a scoffer cannot see the truth of the creator-creature distinction or, or won't see it. He is or she is his own creator. As Piper says, we've already talked about this quote, a scoffer is playing God by deciding what God got wrong. This is the great trick of sin and of Satan. It's the, the Genesis 3 deception of you can be like God. And so when we believe that, we can become so deceived that we simply don't know good from evil. We don't know right from wrong. There's a twisting, a, a, a subversion of what's right and wrong to where we call good is bad and bad is good. Where we say death is life and life is death. This is very common in our culture. Many would point to the, the potential life they might find in Christ and say that's slavery. You're, you're saying that I have to give stuff up to follow Jesus? That is a, a restriction of my freedoms. I don't want limits on my life. I don't want limits on my human potential. That is what many would say about Christ. So the scoffer foolishly believes that any wisdom coming from God is foolishness. Now here's the bad news. I say all that about a scoffer, but I want to remind you what I've already said before. That's all of us. Every single one of us is a scoffer. We are all scoffers because we're all sinners. Sin at its very core is, is me saying, I know better than God. What does he know? He's only the creator of the universe. Even if we have a relationship with Jesus, even if we know Jesus, we still scoff. We still sin. We still mess up. But the good news is there is hope. Um, watching my time here, 1 Corinthians 1, 18-25, I just wanted to point out a couple things from this. It calls the the foolishness, or sorry, the wisdom of man, foolishness, and the, and the, it says the foolishness of God is wiser than man. Was, was, let me just read the text. It's tricky. It's tricky. All right, 1 Corinthians 1, 18-25. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved... It is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preached to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, 
Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Um, the gospel was an offense to the Jews for, for a lot of reasons, one of which was that there's no way in their human belief system, there is no way that Christ could ever have been a poor carpenter who died on a cross. That was ridiculous to the Jews. Uh, to the Greeks, the gospel is foolishness because there is no way in their human wisdom, in their human belief system, there's no way that God could ever become a man because anything that's, that's material is evil. Remember, this is their human wisdom. Okay? Um, the, the, the crazy thing about all that, they're making these judgment calls about Jesus. They're saying, no, he, he can't be who he says he is because based on my wisdom, that's not right. That's, that's kind of crazy though, right? I mean, Jesus is God. He's saying he's Savior. He, he is the one who takes away and forgives sin. But they're saying, no, my... I mean, I know, I know he's saying he's God and all, and that he's got ultimate wisdom, but I think my wisdom's probably a little bit better than that. That's what they were saying. Jesus is God, and when you don't believe in him, you're saying that you know better than God. We're saying that our wisdom is the ultimate wisdom. But Jesus... His wisdom holds up. His wisdom has no cracks. Jesus, by his life, death, and resurrection, has not only told us who he is, but showed us who he is. Son of God, our Savior, the author of wisdom, the author of our faith. And the truth is, is that Jesus saved us by taking our sin, our foolish sin, upon himself on the cross, and then went into Sheol to secure our place with God in the house of wisdom. This is the gospel. And to those who would take an honest look in the mirror and say, I'm a scoffer. The call is to throw ourselves upon the mercy of Jesus. To link ourselves up, unite ourselves with this, this foolishness, this good news, this wisdom from God, which has life-giving power. And don't, again, don't miss that God only calls scoffers to Himself. He only calls us as rebellious. He only calls us out of death. He only calls us out of folly's house. He doesn't call anyone who's already wise in their own eyes because those people don't exist. Even if they think they do. If you can't see that, if you won't see that, you will not see your need for Christ. You will not see the beauty of Christ. You will think He's a great offense. You will think He is an assault on your freedom and that His gospel is foolishness. But God has changed the heart of many a scoffer. Many, many a scoffer. Even those who were hostile to Him. Even those who lashed out at Him. He has called many out of the house of folly and into the house of wisdom. And maybe if you scoff at all of this, that just means that Jesus has you right where He wants you. 
Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are creator, that you alone are wise, that you alone uphold the universe. We thank you that that is not our job. We pray, Father, that you would help us to delight in living according to your wisdom in a relationship with Christ, that we might each day find him to be more and more beautiful as we more and more see our need for him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.